Welcome to SPS Podcast, a podcast dedicated to those immersed in pediatric procedural sedation. My name is Pradeep Kamath, and I'm an associate professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and a pediatric critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Hi, my name is Ann Stormerkin. I'm a professor of pediatrics and a pediatric critical care physician at Case Western Reserve University and Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. In today's episode, we will discuss how to develop a sedation regimen for patients undergoing procedural sedation outside the operating room. We are joined today by Dr. Megan Peters, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Peters is a pediatric intensivist and the Director of Pediatric Sedation Program at American Family Children's Hospital. We are also joined by Dr. Abdallah Dalabi, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Dr. Dalaby is a pediatric intensivist and the Director of Pediatric Sedation Programs at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Dr. Peters, let me start with you. What do you think are some of the factors you need to consider in creating a sedation regimen for a child who will undergo procedural sedation? Well, first off, I want to thank Anne and Pradeep for having me on this SPS podcast. I'm really looking forward to this discussion on tailoring sedation. And I don't have any disclosures or conflicts of interest to disclose. First and foremost, for any child undergoing sedation, we need to take into consideration the procedure requirements and the patient needs. So for example, I want to know if the procedure is painful or if it's not, and if it requires any degree of immobility. Uh, Sometimes a procedure like a placement of a urinary catheter, for example, may not fall into either of those categories, but could simply be classified as distressing. And in general procedures, for children can be anxiety provoking. They're painful, they require immobility. And so it's important to select the appropriate sedation medications in keeping considerations of the procedural requirements. So depending on the patient's age, developmental status, and the length and type of the procedure, I always want to take into consideration if a child is capable of doing that procedure without any medications before we open our pharmacological toolbox. It's really important to have a multidisciplinary team which includes a child life specialist in order to optimize that process. The other thing that may play a role in choosing a sedative regimen is the patient comorbidities. And we can delve into that a little bit more deeply later. Thank you, Dr. Peters. Dr. Dalabi, can you give our listeners some examples of painful, non-painful and distressing procedures, please? Sure. And thank you, Anne and Pandeep, for having me on this SPS podcast. I'm looking forward to the discussion on tailoring sedation medications. I have no disclosures uh, or conflict of interest. So most non-painful procedures we encounter in procedural sedations involve radiology imaging, such as MRI, CT scan, nuclear medicine, and other similar procedures. They vary in their duration and need for immobility. Also, procedures like ABR, EEG, and echocardiography fall in this bucket. Painful procedures like lumbar punctures, uh, bone marrow aspiration and biopsies, uh, abscess drainage, wound dressing, fracture reductions, and distressing procedures are procedures uh, that are minimally invasive, like placement of a urinary catheter for VCUG studies or a peripheral IV placement and similar procedures. Additionally, some older children, such as teenagers, may have claustrophobia when placed in an MRI machine or children with autism spectrum disorder who would feel distressed in any unfamiliar environment. Great. Thank you both for this informative uh, introduction. 
Let's actually now discuss some cases to illustrate how we go about choosing a sedation regimen for our patients. I would like to underscore the fact that for all of these cases, we will be following the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines for Procedural Sedation with respect to patient pre-screening, NPO guidelinings, patient monitoring, for example, heart rate, blood pressure, pulse oximetry, and, and tidal management, as well as the criteria for discharge. We also recommend that the sedation provider is not the proceduralist, but is only providing sedation, assisting in monitoring vital signs, and will recognize and manage any adverse events that transpire, such as airway or hemodynamic compromise. So let's say that our first patient is a three-year-old young boy who needs an MRI with contrast for a prolonged focal seizure, which occurred four days ago. He is previously healthy. He has no significant past medical history. He has also not been exposed to anesthesia or procedural sedation in the past. He has no known drug allergies. On examination, his physical exam is unremarkable and his vital signs are normative for his age. He is appropriately NPO. Dr. Peters, can you walk us through as to how you would approach creating this child's sedative regimen? Sure. So this case provides a classic example of the need for sedation for a non-painful procedure. In this case, uh, it's MRI imaging. And these imaging studies require immobility to acquire high-quality diagnostic images. And this little guy is three years old, so he's not at an age where he could lie still or be distracted by a movie for an MRI that would last anywhere between 30 and 40 minutes. So for this situation, it's best to provide deep sedation. Uh, that's going to happen after placement of a peripheral IV. So I'll administer, in many cases, a very good option is to administer a propofol bolus followed by a propofol infusion, and that is going to run for the duration of his MRI imaging. Uh, and of course, in order to use propofol, we'll need to place a peripheral IV that will also be required for administration of contrast. So I may also offer the family the option in, of providing a measure of anxiolysis for peripheral IV placement. A good option is using nitrous oxide. And one of the many advantages of nitrous oxide for placement of the PIV in this situation beyond simply anxiolysis in mild analgesia is also that it causes venodilatation so that those veins will, veins will be easier to cannulate. And I chose propofol for this child because it does provide good depth of sedation as well as anxiolysis and immobility for the duration of his MRI. Thank you, Dr. Peters. Dr. Dalabi, if this patient has proven allergies such as anaphylaxis in the past, how would you approach this child's sedation for the MRI study? So first, I would like to point out that egg allergy on a skin test or manifesting as a simple rash or gastrointestinal disturbance is not a contraindication to using propofol. Egg allergy is commonly related to egg protein but propofol contains egg lecithin, which is a phospholipid. So being allergic to egg is not necessarily related to the uh, components of egg and propofol. In fact, this is also true for soy allergy. A recent study from Australia published in the journal Anesthesia concluded that genuine serious allergic reactions to propofol is rare and is not, reliable predictor, not reliably predicted by a history of uh, food allergy. But since this patient has a prophylaxis to egg, 
then it is recommended to avoid the use of propofol. In such case, I would consider the use of IV dexmethamidine. I would give a loading dose, follow that by an infusion. Sedation providers should expect approximately 15 to 20% drop in heart rate from baseline values without any hemodynamic compromise. If any bradycardia or hypotension is seen, then we can decrease the dex rate. I also like to give uh, a dose of midazolam either orally or intranasally before the procedure as a pre-medication. I find that uh, this usually decreases the amount of dex that I need to use and increases the duration of sleep provided uh, for the procedure. Dr. Dalabi, is pentobarbital an option here? Well, pentobarbital was commonly used sedative for such patients in the past, but now we have shorter-acting agents like propofol and dexamethamidine. Uh, the use of pentobarb has decreased, as shown by a recent study actually done by UPenDeb in Pediatrics 2020, and uh, it was published using the data from the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium. A previous study also used the same database, showed that the sedation with IV pentobarb can be associated with side effects like failed sedation, prolonged recovery, vomiting, and unplanned admissions compared to a sedation done by propofol. Our group published a study regarding the use of oral pentobarb for pediatric sedation. It works best for patients younger than the age of three years, so it, not wor- it would not work with this patient. And it still was associated with higher failure rates than propofol. For that reason, we don't use it much anymore. Great discussion. Let's move to another case. Dr. Peters, a five-year-old girl has been admitted with signs and symptoms consistent with acute lymphocytic leukemia, and she requires procedural sedation for a diagnostic bone marrow aspiration and biopsy with a lumbar puncture. This patient has been previously well with no allergies and has normal vital signs. This patient has never undergone anesthesia or received sedation in the past. Dr. Peters, how would you approach creating a sedation regimen? This is a classic example of a painful procedure that will also require some degree of immobility. So after making sure that that patient doesn't have any important contraindications, I would choose to give that patient a dose of fentanyl. And then following a dose of fentanyl for induction, I would plan on administering a uh, induction dose of propofol. We would titrate that to effect. And then depending on your preferences in your institution, you could continue to give small aliquots of propofol to maintain uh, depth of sedation uh, consistent with deep sedation for the duration of the two procedures. Or what you could do is you could also set an infusion of propofol to run for the duration of these two procedures, which could probably last about 15 to 20 minutes, depending on the expediency of your uh, procedure lists. For this patient and for all patients too, I would recommend and encourage using some measure of local anesthetic. In this case, use of EMLA would be a good good choice. That's a eutectic mixture of lidocaine and prilocaine. And you want to put that on the site at least 45 minutes, about 45 minutes prior to the bone marrow aspirate and biopsy. Alternatively, the team performing the procedures could use local lidocaine that's instilled just at the site prior to the bone marrow biopsy and aspirate. The combination of fentanyl and propofol is really nicely tolerated, and it does provide good analgesia and amnesia, as well as anxiolysis and immobility. Additionally, if you use fentanyl and propofol together, 
it will spare you doses of propofol about 34% less without any increase in incidence of adverse events like hypotension. And that was a study that was performed by my group at the University of Wisconsin in 2008. Alternatively, if you would prefer not to use fentanyl, you could use ketamine. That also has really nice analgesic effects, and it does provide good protective hemodynamic effects, especially when you're using it with propofol. Thanks, Dr. Peters. Dr. Dalabi, in the above case, what if the institution restricted the use of propofol only by the anesthesiologist? What are your options then? Well, first, I would like to agree with Dr. Peters that in this case, local anesthetics will help a lot, especially if you cannot use propofol. In that case, I also would recommend the, using, the use of combination of intravenous ketamine and intravenous midazolam. IV midazolam can be given as a pre-medication followed by ketamine induction dose. Then ketamine is titrated to effect every five to seven minutes. Ketamine is associated with emesis, though, with this, with this patient population, those patients who receive chemotherapy. In some cases, I would like to consider substituting midazolam with intranasal DEX as a pre-medication. And with this uh, combination with ketamine, it will work really nicely and will give you a steady sedation throughout the procedure. Great discussion. Let's actually consider a third case. We have a six-year-old girl who has autism spectrum disorder and requires procedural sedation in order to undergo venipuncture, ECG, and echo. This patient is otherwise healthy, has no drug allergies, and the autism spectrum disorder is described as being in the mild to moderate range. Dr. Peters, what would you use for her procedural sedation? This case does require a bit more considerations in building a good sedation plan. I'd really highly advocate for involving a multidisciplinary team approach, which could involve child life specialists, sedation nurses, or if you have some behavioral specialists from a local autism center, they can also be really helpful if they're available. What can be really useful is establishing a coping plan in advance of the sedation visit. That can be made with a phone call by either the sedation nurse or the child life specialist with the caregivers of the patient in order to best understand patient triggers, what comforts the patient, what words to use, which words to not use. If the patient will be able to allow sedation practitioners to approach her, then a good choice of medication can be intranasal dexmedetomidine. Any combination of medications that will establish either moderate or deep sedation, depending on the needs of the patient, will be good choices. These are procedures that don't necessarily require a high degree of immobility, but they do re require some degree of cooperation on the part of the patient. So in some situations, moderate sedation is something that can be can accomplish these procedures. So dexmedetomidine is a good choice, like I mentioned. Alternatively, intranasal or peomidazlam or a combination of both of those things is also a good option. Other things to consider if that once the patient is adequately sedated, you want to choose your most experienced IV provider to perform the blood draw to place the IV. And if that patient has a tendency to be aggressive or if they have severe autism spectrum disorder, placement of that peripheral IV followed by an IV bolus of propofol can also be a good option. A propofol infusion can be used if the procedure like an MRI or an echocardiogram is going to be prolonged. And the other consideration that you can make is that some of these patients can be violent and can kick and injure staff. And in those situations, it's good to have a discussion with anesthesiology in advance of the procedural sedation appointment and even refer to anesthesia if a gas inhalational induction is the safest option in order to keep both the patient and the staff safe. 
Thank you, Dr. Peters, for that great discussion. Moving to the next case, uh, Dr. Dalabi, how would you approach a nine-year-old with a distal radius and ulna fracture from a recent fall on his right arm requiring reduction and casting of the fracture? Patient is previously healthy with no allergies and has never received sedation or anesthesia in the past. Current vital signs are stable and patient is appropriately NPO. Uh, however, the mother wants no medications with any addiction risks to be used in a child today. Okay, well, that's a nice twist on that. So the child in this case requires a fracture reduction and casting, which is, although it's a very short procedure, it's a very painful procedure too. Uh, many medications that we use for procedure sedation may theoretically fall into the category of medications uh, with potential addictive effects. However, the exposure is short, and to my knowledge, there had not been any documented cases of addiction from exposure to medications during sedation. So in this case, I would explain to the mother that pain control is very important and will tell her that I will do my best to use non-opiate analgesics. My go-to combination would be propofol and ketamine. I administer sub-dissociative doses of ketamine and follow that with propofol boluses titrated to effect. If the family are present during the procedure, I would usually warn them that the child may move. And uh, I would tell them that we are giving them deep sedation and not anesthesia. But I also would assure them that they will not be aware of the procedure and they will not remember anything when they wake up. We can also substitute ketamine with a combination of IV fentanyl with propofol, given as we discussed uh, before. The combination of ketamine with uh, pre-procedural midazolam is also an option. However, uh, there is a higher incidence of post-procedural vomiting associated with ketamine, especially if we give it uh, IM. Doctors Peters and Galabi, we thank you so much for this informative session on tailoring procedural sedation. Do you have any clinical pearls that you can share with our listeners today in regards to developing a sedative regimen for procedural sedation in children? I think it's always really important to consider using a multidisciplinary team approach to sedation. In particular, our child life specialists uh, perform a very important role in making sure that the patient's needs are met, both from the aspects of the procedure, but also um, from the aspects of the comfort of the patient. So it's important to explain to parents and to the child, if it's age appropriate, what is expected, both from the procedure as well as the sedation. And if sedation medications can be avoided, so for example, if you have an eight-year-old that's in need of a short imaging procedure, that eight-year-old may be able to get by without any sedating medications for that procedure. That is always the best approach is to use as little as necessary, but always use enough that will encourage and lend itself to a high rate of success, both for the patient and for the procedure. Um, there are certain procedures or prolonged imaging studies where sedation is going to be necessary. And another really important thing that I want to convey today is just that Anytime you have any painful procedure, anything that's going to be invasive or uncomfortable, don't forget to consider adequate analgesia in your sedation regimen that you're using. And the use of local anesthetics can really reduce the need for more sedative hypnotic use, including propofol. Um, if you've got a proceduralist who's, using, uh, who's willing to be nice and generous with their local anesthetic, that can often be a really helpful approach to successful sedation. I agree with Megan, and I would add to that that a good history of what has worked and what had not worked in the past is important, especially in patients requiring 
frequent sedation uh, for procedures or images. In pediatric sedation, we only use a limited number of medications. So knowing the pharmacology and interaction between those medications is very important for anyone providing sedation for children. And always remember, when using a sedation combination, that one plus one does not equal two. It's always more than two. Thank you so much for joining us today, Drs. Peters and Dalaby. This podcast has provided an overview of sedation and analgesic medications and how knowledge of the drug pharmacokinetics is required to optimize procedural sedation. Additionally, matching the procedural needs to the patient needs further refines the analgesic and sedative medication regimen that is most effective. Involving a multidisciplinary team, including a child life specialist, and communicating clearly with the patient and the family will optimize patient outcomes and enhance everyone's experience. This concludes our episode today on tailoring sedation. We thank Dr. Peters and Dr. Dalaby for their expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. I am your host, Pradeep Kamath, along with my co-host, Dr. Ann Stormorkan. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.